beyond infinity. Dose of science and technology on Radio Port Phillip with Piers Cunningham. And welcome to the second half of this special presentation about climate change, talking with Professor David Caroli, who's now with the CSIRO. Uh, he was a climatologist at Melbourne University when we recorded this interview back in 2016. So stand by, but uh, particularly appropriate given some of the uh, enormous effects and uh, catastrophic impact of fires in Australia. The figures are staggering, over $700 million in insurance claims already, uh, more than 2,000 homes burnt, property damage. The federal government has promised $2 billion towards uh, the recovery efforts. Uh, and the amount of land that's been lost is enormous, 11.4 million hectares or 28 million acres. It's been blackened, which is about 1.5% of the country's land area. This is uh, an expanse greater than the size of Scotland. Over half the ground burned is in New South Wales and Victoria, those two southeastern states of Australia, and it's mostly dense native vegetation, forests and national parks, as opposed to crop-growing farmland and areas of intensive agriculture. That's not to say there haven't been agricultural impacts. Some of the other effects of these terrible bushfires in southeastern Australia and also in western Australia, shouldn't be forgotten, they've had a pretty bad season for bushfires as well over in the west of, of the country. Animals and wildlife, and particularly koalas, have been really badly impacted. Zoos in Australia and vets who work in zoos in Australia have actually been asked to go out into the country and help with the care of injured animals. So there's lots who've filled up rescue centres. Those centres are struggling to deal with the workload. So officials and experts from zoos are, are lending a hand there, which is a great thing to see. The government has actually pledged $50 million to address the devastating loss of wildlife this bushfire season. This is the federal government. The $50 million in funding will be split between an expert advisory panel and community groups. Koalas will be a focus for restoration efforts with as much as 30% of koala habitat destroyed. Wildlife specialists describe the bodies of charred animals as far as the eye can see in bushfire-ravaged area. So this is really very, very sad. Wildlife carers, hospital zoos, including Zoos Victoria, Adelaide Zoo and Taronga Zoo in, in New South Wales, are all getting involved and they're receiving direct funding from the federal government to help them in dealing with injured animals. Over one and a quarter billion animals are thought to be dead in the wake of bushfires. It's also estimated that hundreds of billions of insects may have been wiped out as well. According to University of Sydney ecologist Chris Dickman, it's also possible that many species may be extinct before they were discovered or documented. Because don't forget, a lot of these fires have happened in national parks and state reserves and the like, in very inaccessible areas, often started by dry lightning strikes. And so these are areas where, prior to the bushfires, the full range of, of species that exist have not necessarily been documented because of inaccessibility and, and lack of study resources focused on those areas. So terrible if that's happened. 
we may never know. In fact, we, we probably won't know if there's been species that were never dis- discovered that have been wiped out completely. And the Humane Society International Chief Executive Erica Martin has welcomed the government's pledge of, of support for wildlife, but said, quote, an elevation of funds for, to the environment will be needed to sustain for the long term. A senior specialist in disaster response at the Humane Society International said she had witnessed, quote, some of the toughest scenes I've ever witnessed as an animal rescuer, the bodies of charred animals as far as the eye can see. But as we set out each day on search and rescue, we're still finding animals alive, injured, dazed or traumatised, and it's such a relief to be able to give them immediate life-saving assistance. We've seen kangaroos with devastating bum injuries and dehydrated koalas gasping for water. Amidst all this death, every time we find an animal alive, it seems like a miracle. Now, it is possible to make financial donations to support charities and fire brigades and animal rescue. You know, these are pretty well uh, documented. The Australian Red Cross, but also other reputable charity organisations can also be donated to. These uh, organisations should continue to be supported as generously as possible by everyone, people within Australia and outside Australia, because... These fires have made news. Some of the images that people have have seen on the news of of fire trucks driving through just infernos, the desolation, people being rescued from Mallacoota by army amphibious vessels and and relocated to safety because there was no other way out. I mean, these are unprecedented scenes, bringing Australia's military forces and reservists into action to help with the bushfire rescue efforts and the like is, is unprecedented in Australia. There's also talk that there's going to be what's called in Australia a Royal Commission to look into you know, what we can do to improve our chances of dealing with bushfires in future and also to look at the environmental impact, the role of climate change. All these things are on the table. They're expensive, but they're thorough. Uh, they bring in all the experts. So if there's going to be some positive change that comes out of all this, then the Royal Commission may well be you know, one of the key drivers to make that positive change going forward, make places safer for people to live in and hopefully um, understand the environment better, backburning processes, indigenous backburning techniques, all this sort of stuff will be on the table. Stand by for the second half of the interview with Professor David Caroli. It's a Beyond Infinity special that we're doing today and we're going to be talking about climate change. We've got a few studio guests. We've got Graham Hannigan from Citizens of Science We've got Dr. Ian Storey from RMIT, he's a lecturer in information systems. And we've also got David Caroli, who is a climate expert. He works with the UN. Tell us a little bit about what you do, David. Well, a lot of the time I do communication and engagement and outreach, talking to groups on climate change science and where the climate change is happening and what's causing it. And that's why I'm here today. So happy to be here. But I'm a professor at the University of Melbourne. I do teaching undergraduate students. I do graduate student supervision. I do research on climate variability and climate change and extreme weather events. And people say I do everything that will get me into the newspaper, like climate change, like stratospheric ozone depletion, and like droughts and floods and extreme events. Excellent. So before we get into the discussion, let's get some basic things sorted out. In a nutshell, what is climate change and why are we certain that humans are causing it, David? Sure, that's really two different questions. So let me talk first of all about what is meant by climate change. There are, in fact, a couple of different definitions. So climate change is really a long-term change in the average weather and climate conditions, as well as the variability. And by long-term, we're usually talking about periods of 30 years or longer. 
And so climate change is then a change of the, the weather and climate over a 30-year period compared with an earlier period. Um, and that could be due to any mechanism. It could be natural variability. We know that on the Earth we've had ice ages in the past, periods when the climate has been much, much colder, and that's primarily due to changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun. We know that the climate was much cooler in the northern hemisphere in a period called Little Ice Age, and warmer in a period called the medieval climate anomaly. But that was particularly affecting the North Atlantic. So we do have decade to decade natural climate variations. Most recently, the next part of the question is, well, what's happened to climate perhaps in the last 50 or 100 years? Is climate change happening now? Can I jump yeah. in? Because what you've covered there is very important. But I, I've seen this question online and uh, it's popped up on, a, on occasion. Can you explain? I think I know, but I'd like yeah. the, the definition. What's the difference between climate and weather? Ah, so that's a really good question. And there is no clear boundary between what is weather and what is climate, except that we know what's weather. We go outside and we experience the weather. So the weather really is the short-term, day-to-day variations in the winds, the temperature, the rainfall, um, what you experience, Mm -hmm. what we experience Mm -hmm. day to day. And so weather forecasting is then predicting what's going to happen over the next day or so. And when we look at, say, weather forecast on TV, we notice that actually the forecasts only go out to about five or at most 10 days Mm -hmm. because we can't predict, scientists can't predict what's going to happen to the weather on times longer than 10 days Mm -hmm. because the weather is chaotic. It's almost random, but it lies within, if you like, some bounds. And those bounds are the typical variations. So let's then think about climate. Climate is the expected pattern or averages of the rain and the temperature at a specific location over a longer period. So it would be typically defined as the 30-year averages of the weather for a specific month and location and time of year. So we know that on average, the climate is warmer in summer Mm -hmm. than in winter. That's climate. But actually, you can get some really cold days, and we've had a few in Melbourne this summer, where it's actually cooler than it was in hot days in winter. Mm -hmm. That's the weather, the day-to-day variations. And you can get massive day-to-day variations in summer and actually relatively smaller variations in winter, but you can get warm days in winter. So having a hot day in winter doesn't cause climate change or doesn't mean that climate change is happening. Having a cold day in summer doesn't mean that climate change has gone away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What we have to think about is these longer-term averages over extended periods, and then look at whether there are changes in those. And that, therefore, the difference between weather and climate is, in some sense, the time scale that we're looking at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another way to think of it is a saying that notionally came from the US, and I can't remember who said it originally, but whether climate is what you expect day to day, weather is what you actually get. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. 
I think it's supposedly from Mark Twain that saying, but he stole it from somewhere else without accreditation. Yeah, because I, I mean, I I know that uh, summer is expected to be warm or yeah. hot, and I expect uh, some thirty degree days and some forty degree. I just don't know exactly when they will be. Yeah. Yep. So, so would it be reasonable to say then that that someone who denies climate change on the basis of their own anecdotal experience simply doesn't remember what it was like thirty years ago? Um, that could be the case, or they may have looked at the data. And it's really important to understand that when we're talking about climate change, we have to be careful about whether we're looking at climate change at one location here in Mornington or on the Mornington Peninsula, or whether we're looking at the climate of the whole of Australia, or the climate of the whole of the globe. Because how much variability there is in the climate depends first of all on what measure we're using, whether we're looking at temperature or whether we're looking at rainfall. Rainfall is much, much more variable day to day and year to year and even 30 year period to 30 year period, just due to natural variations, than temperature. Temperature globally very quite little, but actually at a single location you can have large variations. So it's actually quite easy to pick a site like Melbourne, or Sydney, or anywhere in Australia, a single site, and say, well, look, the weather was hotter on this day in 1860 or 1890. Therefore, it was there's been no climate change because we had some hot days then. Mm-hmm. Well, what we have to look at is the combination of all the days, and we have to be careful about separating and thinking about the scale and the time, both the space scale and the time scale we're looking at. So when we look at observed data globally and for Australia, we can see clear increases in temperature over the last 50 years and over the last 100 years. If we look at rainfall, the patterns of change are much less clear. There have been changes, and what we've seen in Australia are Some places are getting wetter and some places are getting drier, whereas when we look at temperature change, we see that there's been warming almost everywhere globally over the last 100 years, and that that indicates that something's happened. And then we have to think about, well, what might have caused it? Can I ask then about, uh, I know that with the technology today, we have satellites which are able to measure the data, but what have historically been the ways we have actually measured that and then how reliable is are those readings? Yeah. No, no, that's a really good question because if we want to understand what's happening with climate, we want to have the best observations. Mm-hmm. And so when people collect data, they want to have more spatial coverage and they want to have high accuracy observations. And satellite data has been really good at providing better coverage over the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, the whole of the globe. Mm A hundred years ago, we didn't have any satellites. We had less spatial coverage in ships over the oceans. And actually, we had less coverage over land in populated areas. 200 years ago in Australia, In around the early 1800s, we had no colony in Victoria. We had a colony in Tasmania, an expanding colony in New South Wales, a small colony in South Australia and Brisbane, and not much else. So weather data for Australia in 1800 or 1820 was 
almost completely absent. Now, we've actually been able to collect some data to show what was happening then, but more to do with year-to-year variability than long-term trends because the instruments that they used were not high quality and they weren't taken in, how would I say, modern observing methods because what the Bureau of Meteorology has tried to do is to have standard observing techniques, standard thermometers, standard observing techniques, and weather observations taken in the shade, in well-ventilated locations so that there's a wind blowing so it's measuring the shade temperature all the temperatures we hear forecasts for on the bureau of meteorology for today's weather or tomorrow's weather the temperatures are all shade temperatures you go out and put a thermometer in the sun and it can get to 70 degrees celsius on a hot day in summer whereas the shade temperature will be somewhere typically between maybe 30 and 40 or at most 45 degrees Celsius. One of the things I heard um, some time ago was that uh, because of the urban development, some of these measurement tools, maybe one or two locations, had to be relocated uh, to the shade. And by doing so, then there had to be an adjustment in the data in order to accommodate for this variability. So now there's sceptics or denialists saying, well, hang on, you can't play with the data like that because you, you're not getting the yep. correct information. So h- how much does that play into the overall trends and the information that feeds into it, how you come to your conclusions. Yeah, look, that's, again, you've been listening to some of the conversations and that's a really important point to address. As I said before, what the Bureau of Meteorology is trying to do and what data services around the world are trying to do is to collect the highest quality data using modern techniques. But that might mean that in some instances, sites that were in cities or cities that have grown have been relocated into airports or rural areas and that might mean to make the data from those locations consistent with the original locations in less populated city areas there's had to be adjustments there also has to be adjustments for different physical locations as we go up in elevation the climate gets cooler. You go to the top of a mountain, it gets cooler. So even a 100-metre height rise, which doesn't sound like much, can lead to one or two-tenths of a degree cooler average temperature. The other thing, obviously, is that as a city goes up, as buildings go up around a site, the climate will change as well. So what the Bureau does is make adjustments for site locations or use new sites but those new sites have to be then ensured that there's consistent variations over time every time there's an instrument change every time there's a location change turns out that those adjustments are roughly the same for the period from 1910 to 2000 the same in terms of adjustments that warm the temperature and cool the temperature over the whole of the 20th century. However, the biggest change and the reason why the Bureau of Meteorology doesn't commonly provide observations or data for Australia prior to 1910 is before 1910, there was no standard instrument shelter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you go around and you see a weather bureau observing site, it's typically the thermometer is housed in a little white box with little slats on it. It's called a Stevenson screen. It's white. So it reflects the sunlight. Mm -hmm. It's got slats on it so the air can blow across the thermometer. Before 1910, 
There was no standard use of those Stevenson screens. They were introduced in 1910 and 11, or 1909, 10 and 11 across Australia. And that's why the Bureau only uses data routinely over the last, well, 105 years in terms of talking about records. Before that period, often the instruments were not in standard shelters or had impacts. And so none of the record temperatures prior to 1910 are directly comparable with modern observations since 1910, unless they're very, very carefully adjusted. And it's really almost impossible to do for daily data and for looking at temperature records. So yes, there are some people who say, well, the temperatures in Broken Hill or the temperatures in Cloncurry set records of, you know, 120, 130 Fahrenheit in 1860. So there's been no climate change because it was bloody hot in Cloncurry in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Well, it was. I mean, it's still bloody hot in Cloncurry in summer now. The difference is that those thermometers were not housed in standard instrument shelters. Some of them were actually taking observations in the sun. When the first settlers came to Australia, the Royal Society in the UK recommended a standard location for housing weather observations. They actually sent out with some of the military and they said, well, it's got to be on the north side of a building to be out of the sun, mm -hmm. which makes sense if you're in the northern yeah. hemisphere, but <laughs> not, not <down> <laughs> if you're in the southern hemisphere. Yeah. This was standard and they didn't have so many scientists and explorers coming to the southern hemisphere at that time taking observations. They hadn't adjusted it. It was stupid. Yeah. So the results there were it appeared hotter than it was because it was Absolutely. soaking up the sun. Yeah. So what's the correct... So the Bureau of Meteorology measures the temperature in the shade to yep. work out its forecasts. And that's because it's trying to come up with a temperature that's... It's, it's because the forecast is intended for humans. So the humans are generally in the shade. No, no, no. It's intended to provide a forecast of a temperature which is comparable and robust in terms of the influence of winds and shade because the sunshine temperature will be very much affected by how much sunlight it is and much more affected by the time of the year and how much cloud there is and the time of day. The shade temperature, I mean, the hottest shade temperature is much more robust from day to day. It's still highly variable, but it's a much more predictable quantity. Okay. And it's a standard approach. The World Meteorological Organization says you should take the temperature at between one and a half and two meters above the surface. It's typically one and a half meters above the surface in the shade, in a well-ventilated site, bloody, bloody, blah. There are approved international procedures for collecting these observations and then providing them yep. and then all around that, the world. And then that gives climate scientists like you the ability to actually look at comparable data where you can get sort of reliable averages. That's correct. Yep. Now, the, the other important thing to recognize is that even though we don't have temperature observations or rainfall observations at every square meter of Australia or the oceans around the world, we can actually get quite good estimates of the variations from year to year or month to month because when it's hot in Melbourne on a day or hot in Victoria over a season, it's typically hot not just in Melbourne, but in fact in 
quite a large area all around Melbourne and Victoria. In fact, it'll be hotter than normal at the top of Mount Buller and Mount Hotham, as well as in Melbourne. But it just won't be as hot on the top of Mount Buller and Mount Hotham. So what we often look at is taking averages of the departures from the normal temperature at that location. Right. They're more spatially uniform. And when we look at the average, what you'll often see on Bureau of Meteorology's maps or when we're looking at averages is the departures from normal. And they can be averaged. Whereas if you wanted to estimate that as much from the actual temperatures, it turns out to be much harder to calculate the average temperature than the average departure from normal. Right. Yep. I, th I think what's important to note is that it's, it's science that recognises the deficiencies in, in the measurements in the past and is working to correct them. Um, well, and not always correct them, just to allow for allow them. Allow for them, compensate, yeah. Yeah, and, and to recognise the uncertainties yeah. in yes. the data. And that's one of the issues that has to be very carefully, how would I say, looked at and avoided when cherry-picking yes. a specific, how would I say, day or year or location in terms of the data. We have to try to assess all the data and, in fact, have multiple independent groups calculating average temperatures for the globe and assessing the data with different approaches to processing the data. And now when we're looking at global average temperatures, there are in fact, well, depending on how you count, three or four or even five different groups with their own methods calculating the global average temperature every month and every year to assess what are the temperatures. And there are small differences because they use slightly different approaches for covering the gaps in the data and rep doing the analysis. But they're all within much less than five one hundredths of a degree for their estimates of and the temperature in 2015 or the temperature in 2014. And the likelihood of a denier, climate change denier, finding an anomaly, a real anomaly, are pretty low because the the scientists are doing that all the time anyway. But the deniers like to, as you said, cherry pick and say, look, in Cloncurry in this year it was this hot, so therefore climate change isn't happening. So. It's, it's very much confirming their own biases. One of the things that I've seen, you know, when there was the, I think it was the wobble from the Arctic Circle, which then froze the northern part of America, people were saying, well, climate change must be over. It's, it's false because we've had, it, you know, it's frozen up here. Lake Michigan, I think, froze over and, and then, well, it's, it's all fake now. So I think that calls into question at times, well, if we have a, a cold experience, does that mean that we're back to normal now. Yeah. Me, as on the outsider, I, I've looked into it a bit further and I can understand, well, of course we're going to have these variations. It's not always going to be hot every day. It just means that there was probably, what, more hotter days and potentially the heat will increase on those hotter days as well. In the US, we had the recent excursion of cold air down as far as New York. And I think we're getting a similar effect in around the Arctic. I'm not an expert on this, but I happen to see a, an episode of Catalyst. And they were saying that around the Antarctic, the winds are slowing. We're getting more excursions of cold air away from the poles, giving a false impression that there's less energy in the atmosphere when it's actually energy in the atmosphere that's causing that. Can you comment on that? Okay, so there were, there were lots of things that you said, some of which were absolutely correct and some of which aren't correct. But so 
what we when we talk about energy in the atmosphere, we're we're looking at the the temperature and the moisture in the atmosphere. And when we look at this heat content, the temperature in the atmosphere, yes, it's increased. And the temperature is also increased in the ocean. So the heat content of the oceans I mean, has increased. I, I, am, I am aware of the, of the albedo. Yep. Um, probably we should explain that to listeners too. Yeah, um, let, let's come to albedo a little bit later. But energy, yeah. yeah, you were talking about the, the winds around the Arctic. It turns out that what drives the winds, particularly the winds from west to east, is predominantly the difference in temperature in the north-south direction. And the Arctic has warmed and lost ice faster than the middle latitude regions. So that means that it's been less cold in the Arctic. And that means the west to east winds are actually a little bit less around the Arctic. And that then allows stronger excursions in temperature, particularly cooler temperatures, as well as warm temperatures. While the emphasis from commentators, particularly climate change deniers, has been some wintertime cold temperatures, they didn't bother talking this year as much when it was, in fact, 70 degrees Fahrenheit or more than 20 degrees Celsius on Christmas Eve in New York. This was close to a record temperature. It may have actually been a record this, in a number this of... Year, this year. This, well, not 2016, yep. where most recent Christmas, it was extremely hot. And again, this was associated with a very strong transport of warm air from the south, as well as colder air in another region. It's basically east-west variations in temperature, or air coming up from the south, and very large departures associated with the slightly weaker than normal west-to-east winds. When we come to the Antarctic, however... Partly associated with stratospheric ozone depletion, partly associated with longer-term climate change, we aren't getting as much warming in the middle of Antarctica. That means the north-south temperature gradient has stayed the same. The winds are actually, if anything, getting stronger around Antarctica, and that's leading to a reduction in the, if you like, changes in sea ice. When we look at sea ice, another conundrum is that around Antarctica, there hasn't been a decline in sea ice, although there has been a very rapid and substantial decline in the ice in the oceans around the Arctic. Around Antarctica, if anything, the sea ice minimum, which usually occurs in March, as well as the sea ice maximum, which occurs in the Southern Hemisphere in September, they've actually been getting more sea ice. Now, there's a number of reasons that might that might be happening, but it's actually quite complicated. It's partly due to these stronger winds from west to east, but it's also due to the fact that the oceans are getting warmer. That leads to more melting of glaciers, ice sheets, and they're slipping off Antarctica, providing a bigger source of sea ice. So this is lots of complicated things. Just one question on that quickly. Do we yeah. know anything about the, the thickness of that ice? Yeah. Is it becoming, even though the area might be growing, does the yeah. thickness thin or thicker? Or? Yeah. So for the Arctic, it's getting less and it's getting much 
thinner. Mm -hmm. For the Antarctic, the ice is not getting thicker. It's staying roughly the same and expanding. But what we do know is as you come to the coast, the ice is getting thinner and the ice in much of the area around Antarctica is melting on average. Or should I say there's a, an ice loss net over Antarctica. And the really interesting thing is you can measure the weight of the ice all over Antarctica from satellites by the change in the local gravity. Hmm. Oh, wow. So two satellites close together can measure the difference in gravity mm -hmm. as the satellites fly over Antarctica. They're very, very accurate measurements. It's more accurate than trying to drill mm -hmm. through two and a half kilometers of ice, mm -hmm. and it measures the total weight of ice so they, over they Antarctica. Have very, very uh, precise measurements of their trajectory and the effect on the gravity of the satellite. Yep. Wow. Yes, and that then allows the total weight of ice on Antarctica or on Greenland to be measured and how it varies from year to year. And it's a really clever piece of modern technology. The news for Greenland is not good? Both the news for Greenland and the news for Antarctica is net mass loss. That's loss of ice. And if you melt ice, it becomes water. And that water flows downhill and ends up in the ocean. And it's a significant contributor to increasing sea level. Now, we need to probably go back a bit because we're yeah. getting into the details. We yeah. need to go back to, okay, we've got climate change. The climate's warming. What in the hell's causing it? Is it us, human activity, or is it just natural variations? The sun we know, or volcanoes or... Or natural variability. Yep. We've been in ice ages. Is this just recovery mm -hmm. from the last ice age? Yep. Well, that was sort of what we were moving to with the next question. And presumably there are clear signs that since the Industrial Revolution, things have changed. And that would be suggesting that it's human-induced climate change. It could be, but it could also be just natural variability recovery from the... Which is coincidental with the... Coincidental with the little ice age. I've got a, a chart here of temperatures during the ice ages. The temperatures that we're predicted to reach and that we're reaching now are at the top of what we've ever had before. The temperature seems to be increasing, not in geological time to me. I mean, I know some of the ice ages were quick, but it's, it's a real coincidence that it's happening alongside industrial activity. Yeah. And, and the other, just one other point, the CO2 has risen above whatever we've experienced as a species, ever. That's absolutely correct. And what we have to do as scientists is try to investigate the range of possible causes. Um, it's certainly true that when we look over the 4 billion years of the Earth's history, for most of that 4 billion years, the temperature of the Earth has been hotter than at present. So over geological times, the Earth's been hotter than now. That's absolutely correct. And also for most of that period, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere has been higher than now. We're actually in a relatively cooler climate, not an ice age, but a relatively cooler climate. But for people and human society, what's important is what's happened over the last 10,000 years. All of human civilization has developed and maybe collapsed, if you're thinking about a range of different civilizations, over the last 10,000 years. We have no thermometers directly available that measured temperatures, but we can use what's called paleoclimate data. So if we look at natural climate variability over the last 10,000 years, 10,000 years ago, the temperatures were warmer than present by about a degree. Climate cooled, and this is exactly what you expect from the orbital variations of the Earth around the sun, and it's cooled 
pretty steadily until the Industrial Revolution. Various ups and downs. It was a little bit warmer a thousand years ago and 2,000 years ago. In the Roman era, it was warmer than present. In the Middle Ages, medieval warm period, it was warmer, but mainly warmer in the Northern Hemisphere and particularly in the, Atlant- in the Atlantic area. So let's look first of all at a range of different causes. We've had one degree warming, a little bit less, nine-tenths of a degree warming in the last 100 years. That is larger in magnitude than changes that have been experienced on a 100-year timescale at any stage over the last 10,000 years, much larger. We then have to look at a range of different indicators about what might have caused it and the patterns of response. We have to look at what are called fingerprints or patterns that might be useful in explaining the different causes. If it was increasing sunlight from the sun, most people know that there's not very much sunlight in the middle of the night. It's not a profound statement. It's dark. That sounds pretty true. Yeah. Yeah. So if the sun was getting stronger, as one of my favorite commentators, Andrew Bolt, argues, then I would expect that sunlight, when it gets stronger, would cause more warming in daytime Mm -hmm. and more warming in the summer Mm -hmm. and less warming in winter and less warming at night. But when we go to the observational data across the globe, we see on land that there's more warming in winter and more warming at night. That's exactly what you expect from one factor, increases in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and not what you expect from changes in sunlight. Those changes are also outside the range of natural variability. So, so the sun's impact, does it have no impact on the change or does it have minimal impact or well, where does it sit? Yeah, so it depends on which time period you look at. Mm-hmm. The sun has natural variations mm-hmm. on a range of different timescales. The sun has a natural 11-year cycle. Yep. It mainly affects ultraviolet radiation and sunspot cycles. Mm. It has a small impact on temperature, but that temperature impact in terms of global average temperatures is less than one-tenth of a degree. In fact, much less than one-tenth of a degree. So the the prolonged solar minimum is unlikely to be influencing climate. A prolonged solar minimum would be expecting to cool the climate. And we, people yeah. have been arguing that we've been in a solar minimum and there has been some indication of reductions in solar activity over the last 30 years. But if that was happening, you'd expect climate to cool. Mm. And we haven't had a cooling in the climate. In fact, temperatures have warmed over the last 30 years by a couple of tenths of a degree. That direction, again, would suggest that changes in the sunlight are not causing the changes If we look at what's happened in the last 100 years, there's been no long-term trend in sunspots or solar activity over the last 100 years. Temperatures warmed by nine-tenths of a degree. Best estimate of the contribution of changes in intensity of sunlight to the warming over the last 100 years is, best estimate is zero, but plus minus maybe a tenth of a degree or less. So the most generous estimate is that the sun has contributed about a tenth of a degree to the warming we've seen. It's a very, very small contributor. Okay. So other contributors that might have contributed would be natural variability. It's harder to estimate what that would be over the last 100 years. Natural variability could cause warming or cooling. It's natural variability associated with cycles between the ocean and the atmosphere. And that can cause warming or cooling. 
as associated with exchanges of heat between the ocean and the atmosphere. Even recovery from the last cooler period, the so-called Little Ice Age, that could only be a natural variation. And the real reason for that recovery has been the changes, the climate changes due to human activity. So when the, the Thames froze back in yep. 500 years ago, yep. we could still be in that kind of weather. We could be experiencing that were it not for human-induced well, climate change. We have to be a little bit careful. The Thames froze in the 1600s, but there were also some cold periods in the 1800s. But it wasn't a globally uniform cold mm. period. In fact, research I've done with colleagues looking at data from Antarctica, from Greenland, and from a range of different tree ring records around the globe, we find that actually for a lot of those very cold decades that affected Europe, it was actually warmer in the Southern Hemisphere. There's an opposite variation between the Northern and Southern Hemispheres. When we look at the global average, you remove that, a lot of the natural variability. There were cool periods in the 1800s, and it's really since the 1800s that the climate has warmed. That natural cycle that we would expect when we look at century timescale variability due to natural processes, one or two tenths of a degree only. That's the range of okay. variability globally. So that means when you look at the sun, when you look at natural variability, sun is maybe plus minus a tenth of a degree or less. Century timescale natural variability, plus minus one to two tenths of a degree but it could be positive or it could be negative. When we look at the observed, you're left with human-caused increases in the climate. So the dominant so factor there is changes in greenhouse gases. But you're going to ask something. Well, I was just going to say that because there are people who are suggesting that we're actually dodging a, another ice age by changing the climate through emissions. Yep. So that's... Well, it's not you're, a good point. It's actually a you're, real... You're dismissing that because you, you, you've just said that the... Well, no, the, I'm not dismissing it because of that. I'm dismissing it because when scientists have looked at the likely timing for the next ice age, because the little ice age was not an ice age at all. It was cold in a few locations. But actually, England is often cold in winter, as is the northern part of the North America. And actually, what's happened in the last 20, 30 years is they've actually had a range of much warmer winters. Yes, it's occasionally been cold, but typically winters have got much warmer. Mm. So people have got used to that. And every time they get a cold year, they say, oh, it's an ice age. No, it's relatively cooler. But the temperature departures in that period around 1600 to 1800, on average, were only a couple of tenths of a degree colder than the period at the early part of the 20th century. Why do I dismiss humans having dodged a bullet because when we look at the likely timing for the next ice age mm -hmm. the range of cycles in the earth's orbit around the sun change the period we've had a strong periodicity where an ice age occurs about every 100,000 years and the warm period only lasts about 10,000 years or so based on that you might argue well we're just avoiding the next ice age but actually when we look at the orbital cycles this warm period is predicted to last not 10,000 years, but more like 20 to 30,000 years. So don't hold your breath. The next ice age, if there weren't humans influencing the climate, wouldn't happen for likely of the order of 10 to 20,000 years. That isn't a reason for humans pumping more greenhouse gases <laughs> into the atmosphere to avoid the next Ice Age. Mm. You've been sort of mentioning a few times that different regions are affected differently by climate change. I remember seeing Vladimir Putin interviewed a while ago and he was saying, well, climate change is actually good for us 
because we've got all this frozen tundra in Siberia, this sort of unusable permafrost. So if we warm up, great. You know, it's good for us. More farmland, easier to live there. I'll even say that I've spoken to people, friends that have said, well, it'd be great to have an extra durry or two uh, during summer you know, to warm up and spend more time down at the beach. That really is going to tie into a subject which we will hopefully come to. What's the human? Yep. What's the response to it? Yep. And how do you get a, a uniform? Because it seems to me you do have to have a uniform response. You have to have a global response to human-induced climate change. Well, if you want to address, if yes. the globe if you wants want to, to address human-induced yes. climate change, then yes, there needs to be a global response. But yep. it is, in fact, absolutely true that there are some winners and losers in mm. terms of the impact of climate change. Mm. And currently, colder climates are likely to have some benefits from a warming climate. They'll have longer growing seasons because the cold period in winter will shorten. Um, they'll have potentially more forest growth because more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and warmer temperatures will allow more forest growth. Um, they'll potentially have greater access to land, less people getting sick or having health issues because more people die at present from cold extremes than from hot extremes. Right. Flu is more common in winter in cold temperatures. Cold climates aren't good for plants. They aren't good for people. And mm. Russia or Canada or Siberia or North China. Greenland. There's not many people living on Greenland no, but at there, present. There could be more. There could be. If it warms up. Yes, there was in fact agriculture mm, from mm. the Vikings in Greenland right. in the medieval period. Mm. So yes, there are potential benefits from a warmer climate in cool climates. However, if you're already in a hot climate, and Australia has a hotter climate on average than any other developed country, and Australia has a lower rainfall than any other Continent. large continent right. well, or large country in the world, more variable and lower. And that means that Australia is more susceptible to droughts. The more variability means if it's not drought, sometimes we get very heavy rainfall like we did in 2010 to 2012. We get lots of floods. The fact that Australia's got a highly variable climate and a hotter climate means that if Australia gets warmer, it's likely going to have adverse impacts. Now, there are some locations, particularly Tasmania, where a little bit warmer won't necessarily have adverse impacts as quickly as inland Australia or the northern parts of Australia. And if it gets hotter in Darwin, particularly what's projected for 50 years' time or 100 years' time, it becomes like no place on the planet at present. We're talking about three to four to five degrees of warming Darwin warms that much on average, it becomes hotter than anywhere on the planet at present. Wow. Hot and wet. We, before we move on, there's one thing I want to touch on. Of course. We talked on the sort of role of greenhouse gases warming the climate. We actually haven't talked at all. And that's exactly what I was about to touch upon. Where do these greenhouse gases come from and what's caused the climate change? And that is a really important point. We talked about things that weren't causing climate change. We didn't talk about what is causing the climate change. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that increases in carbon dioxide and other long-lived greenhouse gases in the atmosphere due to human activity. So carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons have all increased dramatically since the Industrial Revolution. They existed before. They, they, no, uh, some of the CFCs well, not didn't the CFCs, exist sorry, but before. Carbon dioxide obviously did yes. exist. And there carbon was... dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide existed in the atmosphere. And we can look at their concentrations in ice 
core data. Bubbles of air from 100, 1,000, or even 800,000 years ago allow us to measure the concentrations of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide over the last 800,000 years. And what we find is, as was said already, they're all significantly higher now than at any time over the last 800,000 years, at any time since human civilization, except the last 100 years. And what we do know is that from a range of different analysis and observations, we can show that those increases are due to human activity, due to burning oil, burning coal, burning natural gas, as well as other industrial activity, particularly agriculture and land clearing. The methane and nitrous oxides coming from agriculture and industrial activity, the carbon dioxide coming from land clearing and burning fossil fuels. And we know when you listen to climate skeptics, they say, oh no, the carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere, you know, a billion years ago. So it's dissolved in the ocean and it happens, more carbon dioxide happens before the warming, you know, that follows after the ice age interglacial cycles. So this carbon dioxide is just coming out of the ocean. Well, we can look at observational data. We can show that it's not coming from volcanoes. It's not coming out of the ocean. It's higher in the atmosphere now than is going into the ocean. Carbon dioxide is dissolving in the ocean, but that happens after what's happening. The carbon dioxide concentration, scientists are virtually certain all of the increase has been due to human emissions of carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels and from land clearing. There was an Australian scientist, John Church, I think was his name, from CSIRO, who looked at the isotopic ratios. I think it was carbon. Yep. Carbon so nitrogen. isotopic ratios of carbon dioxide, carbon-12 and carbon-13, yeah, carbon carbon. differentiate between the sources of that carbon dioxide and what that isotopic signature shows is that the carbon dioxide's coming it from was, was, old, photosynthetically processed carbon, and that indicates that it's basically fossil fuels or plants. Now, the other critical indicator is that the oxygen concentration in the atmosphere is falling. Not by much, but a small amount exactly matching the increase in carbon dioxide. And that is because when you burn fossil fuels or when you biodegrade plant material, you use up oxygen. And that's exactly what's happening. And you can't get that from carbon dioxide coming out of the ocean. So we know that humans are the causes of the increase in carbon dioxide, unless you're a climate change denier who wants to disavow all this scientific evidence. Can I ask about the uh, the concentration levels? We yep. uh, we know of a number which at the moment I think it's sitting just above 400, maybe about 402 parts per million. Is that homogenous in the atmosphere or do we look at pockets where it's significantly higher than that? And if that's the case, if there's more CO2, does that not then form a bit of a blanket to then shield some of the sun and therefore reflect it potentially acting as a bit of a cooling layer? So There's a lot there's, in that, I know. Well, there's yeah. two parts to that. One part is correct. And one part is complete bullshit. Okay. <laughs> Just to put it bluntly, let's go with the correct part first. So the carbon dioxide concentration, best estimates at present, when we've got to also look, there's a seasonal cycle mm-hmm. in carbon dioxide because plants take up carbon dioxide when they grow as part of photosynthesis and then release carbon dioxide when they basically die off. Material in the plants basically decays. Mm-hmm. So there's a seasonal cycle with higher carbon dioxide in the northern hemisphere in 
the autumn or what's called the fall season in America and less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in spring when plants in the northern hemisphere are growing. And people say, well, wait a sec, that's unfair. That's all happening in the northern hemisphere. What about the southern hemisphere? Well, actually, there's less land mass, which means there's less plants in the southern hemisphere. So the outer phase spring and autumn seasons in the southern hemisphere don't completely wipe out the seasonal cycle in carbon dioxide uptake. So what that means is we've got to look at an annual average. We don't have final data for the annual average carbon dioxide concentration in 2015, but it's around 399 to 400 parts per million. Okay. For 2014, it was 397 parts per million. And it goes up between two and three parts per million a year. Mm -hmm. When we add to that the influence of the other long-lived greenhouse gases in terms of warming the atmosphere, the equivalent carbon dioxide concentration is 481 parts per million in 2014. Not 400 parts per million, but 481. Now, people have talked about avoiding dangerous climate change and we should keep warming to less than two degrees. Turns out that 481 parts per million of long-lived greenhouse gases is enough to cause more than two degrees of warming. And they're called long-lived greenhouse gases because natural processes only remove them very slowly from the atmosphere. Well, if that's the case, and we've got this 481 parts per million of carbon dioxide and other long-lived greenhouse gases, why don't we have two degrees of warming already? Mm. So the answer to that is, actually, we have another major climate influence due to human activity. This is particles and aerosols in the atmosphere. The urban haze or the industrial haze that you see over cities, and over industrial areas, not just in Australia, but particularly in Asia, Africa, and South America. That haze causes the gray or brown haze, and that's indicating it's reflecting sunlight. Because if it's brown, means it's less light, the light's being scattered. And that means that if there's less sunlight being received, it cools the climate. That influence is wiping out about the equivalent of 80 parts per million of carbon dioxide. There are bubbles cooling the climate system, but they're bubbles of aerosols or particle emissions over industrial areas. Now let's come back to CO2. And this is the bullshit part. <laughs> you asked whether there are local increases in or regions with higher CO2. Yes, there are. Mm -hmm. Not bullshit. Mm -hmm. But remember, carbon dioxide is a natural part of the atmosphere. You can't see it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't absorb sunlight. So it's transparent to sunlight. So more carbon dioxide doesn't reflect sunlight. It actually is transparent. The sunlight reaches the surface of the Earth. In fact, you would expect if we had long-term, much higher regions of CO2, that it would cause more warming because it, what CO2 does and all the greenhouse gases do is they absorb infrared radiation or long-wave radiation that comes up from the surface of the Earth and they then re-emit it in all directions. And some of it is re-emitted downwards. So what does more carbon dioxide do? Well, it potentially causes locally more warming. But then we have to look at how big are these long-term variations in carbon dioxide. There are higher carbon dioxide variations or concentrations where there are major sources. And that means where there are major areas burning CO2 or deforesting CO2 or major areas of fire. And you can get variations of the order of 10 to 20 parts per million in 400. So that's 5% variation. Yep. But that doesn't lead to 5 degrees more warming. It leads to about 5% of the about 9 tenths of a degree 
extra warming in that region. The other important point is that the amount of warming you get from changes in CO2 is not linear. If you increase the amount of CO2 by 100 parts per million or 20 parts per million, you don't get the same temperature change for every 100 parts per million or 20 parts per million. The amount of warming is proportional to the logarithm right. of the amount of temperature. Now, no one remembers logarithms from high school. So the easiest way to think about it is for every doubling or every same percentage change in CO2, you get the same amount of warming. If you double the concentration from 200 parts per million to 400 parts per million, you'll get a certain amount of warming. And the best estimate of that warming is about three degrees. Mm-hmm. So we but were at 200 pre-industrial? We were about 200 in the minimum of the last ice age, which was 30,000 years ago, 20 to 30,000 years ago. At the end of the ice age, and the last 10,000 years, we we're around 300 parts per million. And now we're at 400 parts per million. So we've increased 100 parts per million in about 150 years. The previous time we grew from 200 parts per million to 300 parts per million, natural processes, it took more than 1,000 years. So we've done it very quickly. We've done it very quickly. But really important point is that you go from, say, 200 to 400, three degrees. The next time, see, that's 200 parts per million increase, but the next doubling is 400 to 800 parts per million. And you'll only get another three degrees of warming. What are we talking about CO2? Business as usual. We're talking about a thousand parts per million by the end of this century Mm. without human controls on carbon dioxide. All right. Well, thank you very much to David Caroli and and the other studio guests, Graham Hannigan and Dr. Ian Storey and John Young. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for listening to our special presentation of the interview that we did in early 2016 with Professor David Caroli, climatologist, now working at the CSIRO, was with uh, Melbourne University when we spoke to him in 2016. I thought it was particularly appropriate to air this interview. It's quite extensive, it's quite detailed. He goes into a lot of depth about why we need to take climate change seriously, the sort of things that we can do about it, the industries affected. It's quite a, a detailed discussion. And if you'd like to support people who are trying to rebuild after bushfires, there are several ways you can do that. One is to the Salvation Army. Their website is salvationarmy.org.au. They are asking people to help support affected communities around Australia. Your donation will help the Salvos provide groceries and essentials to Aussies in need. Another way is through foodbank.org.au. For every dollar you donate, we can provide $6 worth of supplies to affected communities. We're a trusted organisation forming part of the official emergency response network. So that's foodbank.org.au. Worldanimalprotection.org.au. Australian animals need urgent help, uh, so you can donate to help animals if you'd like to do that through that website. And also the Australian Red Cross which has volunteers at evacuation and recovery centres around the country. So different ways that you can get involved and help out with a financial contribution towards those who are trying to rebuild following those catastrophic bushfires in Australia. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you've liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.